Well, this is the last Sunday I get to say, join me in the Gospel of John, John chapter 21, as today is the conclusion of our study of this great book. A writer is always concerned with the conclusion, doesn't matter whether he's writing a, an article or a book or a speech or a letter, even a sermon, the conclusion is important. The conclusion can be a powerful and thought-provoking way to draw the presentation to a close. So it's interesting to examine John's conclusion to this fourth gospel in chapter 21 here. What's interesting is the fact that even though the gospel is the account of Jesus, his life and ministry, John did not choose to focus on the actual final words of Jesus, the final words Jesus spoke before he ascended into heaven or final directions he gave. We would find that in Matthew 28, the end of Matthew. It's what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We don't have that in the last chapter of John. Instead, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, John chose to conclude his gospel with this meeting that took place between Jesus and a group of disciples. As we've already seen in our study of this chapter, this meeting began over breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's interesting because that's basically where Jesus began his relationship with these men. When he first called them to be his disciples, In chapter 1 of the gospel, it was in Galilee. So here they are again. What took place between those events, the beginning in Galilee and the end in Galilee? Well, in all the chapters since then, from one perspective, we could say this. We've been listening to Jesus, of course, but we've also been watching the disciples receive quite an education as they follow Jesus around for those three years. I mean, just think about it. They had witnessed firsthand all the incredible miracles that Jesus performed, like the feeding of the 5,000 and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They'd heard profound teaching, listening to Jesus as he taught. They also witnessed the opposition that was growing against Jesus, especially from the Jewish religious leaders, opposition that ultimately resulted in in Israel's rejection of Jesus, but then that opposition resulted in Jesus' agonizing death on the cross. And that event led to despair on the part of these disciples, but then we saw that that despair that followed Jesus' death was countered by the joy that they had when they realized that Jesus was alive again. He had risen from the dead. No doubt, because of all these dramatic experiences, these disciples were certainly not the same men that they were back in chapter 1. In any case, here we are at the end of Jesus' ministry, and we have seen in this chapter that Jesus recommissioned Peter to the ministry, even though Peter had failed so miserably by publicly denying the Lord three times. We saw last time in our study that Jesus gave Peter the opportunity of a a triple retraction to match the triple denials. 
Our study last time covered the first segment of what I said are several segments that make up this final scene in the Gospel of John. That first segment last time was, number one, the probing inquiry. And that segment primarily consisted of the three questions that Jesus posed to Peter and then Peter's three responses. So today we will complete our study of this final scene in John by walking through the remaining segments of that scene. Here's segment number two now, the sobering prediction. The sobering prediction. As this final chapter concludes, we see that Jesus went on to give some insight into another reason uh, for his questioning, his inquiry of Peter. I mean, not only did Jesus want to give Peter that opportunity of the triple retraction to make up for his denials, and not only did Jesus want to recommission Peter to the ministry, there was one more thing going on. Jesus knew what awaited Peter in the future. And therefore, Christ wanted to prepare Peter for what was coming in his life, or more specifically, to prepare him for what was coming related to his death. Here's what Jesus predicted, this sobering prediction concerning Peter's death. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. Now, as it does throughout this gospel, we've seen it before, this solemn phrase, truly, truly, as it always does, Here also, it introduces a a significant truth. This time, the significant truth is Peter's, the fact that Peter's experience in life was going to change. Christ says that previously, Peter, when you were younger, uh, you were essentially in control of your choices, in control of your actions, and so forth, but you will not always have this freedom, Peter. Verse 18 continues, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. So here, this idea of being younger carries a a positive connotation. It's the positive connotation of the freedom that goes with that, while the idea of being old is signaling the, the opposite of that, restriction a contrast between the freedom that he's had and the restriction that will be something he'll experience in the future. Even more specifically, this restriction will, for Peter, end in his martyrdom. That's what the phrase, stretch out your hands, refers to, Peter's future death. Now, in the ancient world, that phrase was uh, an equivalent to saying uh, crucifixion. And we've seen this before about the crossbeam, the stretching out that is mentioned here, that took place when a condemned prisoner was tied to the crossbeam of the cross that he will be executed on. That crossbeam would be placed on the prisoner's neck and shoulders, his arms would be tied to it, and then he would be forced to carry that crossbeam to the place of the execution. We saw that played out when Jesus was crucified. So this is what Jesus was referring to. There was going to come a time when others were going to do that to Peter. They would bind him, 
to a cross beam. They would lead him away to be executed by crucifixion. And John, the author, confirms that this is what Jesus was talking about in verse 19. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Now think about that from Peter's perspective, especially when you consider all that Peter experienced in his life from this point onward. He spent the last three decades of his life with this prediction hanging over him. The last 30 years of his life serving the Lord all the while knowing what was going to happen, all the while anticipating his martyrdom. But at least he was also comforted in what Jesus said. He was comforted by the prospect, the knowledge that he would glorify God in that death. What a thought. Really, that means, Peter, you are going to be faithful all the way to the end. There'll be no more denials. You'll glorify me, but you'll glorify me even in your death. Of course, by the time John wrote what we're studying this morning, when he wrote this gospel, this prediction had long been fulfilled. John wrote this decades after all this took place of what we're studying in John 21. So Peter had been martyred, probably in Rome, under the emperor Nero. There's a bit of a, of a legend that has circulated, though, uh, through the centuries about Peter, uh, accounts, it's the account of Peter supposedly being crucified upside down. Maybe you've heard that. That when he came to the time of death, he said that he felt unworthy to be crucified as the Lord was, and so he, he asked to be crucified upside down. That actually is just a legend. We don't really have proven credible sources about that. In any case, he was executed. He did follow Christ in the kind of death that Jesus suffered, crucifixion, but he also followed Christ in bringing glory to God through that, not only through his earthly life and ministry, but through his death. And then in verse 19, we find this final exhortation again. Jesus takes Peter back after telling him this sobering prediction. He brings him back to his original call in order to challenge Peter to Stay consistent in your discipleship until that martyrdom comes. Verse 19 says, and when he had spoken this, Jesus, he said to Peter, follow me. This final exhortation to Peter is really Jesus' own definition of what it means to evidence true saving faith. Following Jesus Christ is the essential essence of the Christian life. Christ said that back in John chapter 10, verse 20. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's what true believers always do. They follow Jesus. In John chapter 12, he put it very simply. Jesus said very clearly in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And it's true no matter what the cost is, and there is a cost. We find it put in terms of self-denial and taking up your cross. For example, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. And Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. 
This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's the willingness to sacrifice everything in submission to the Lord's will and to obey Him. There's another desire that goes with this, following Jesus. Daily following Him to evidence that we're His followers. It's the desire to imitate Him. And we're told to do that. John says it in his first epistle, 1 John 2, verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We can't just say what it means to follow Jesus. Scripture tells us what it means to follow Jesus. It's to imitate him. It's to live as he lived, to walk as he walked. That's why Paul said this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 11, verse 1. He told the Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. This is the essence of the Christian life, following Jesus, imitating Jesus. It's the evidence that someone's a true believer, the desires and choices to do that. What a great thing to to think about. This is our identity. I mean, people all over this world, all around us, are trying to find their identity in all, all kinds of false ideologies and, and behaviors. No purpose in life. We have it. Every day, it's, it's this. This is who we are. We're followers of Christ. And that brings us to the third segment of this final scene. Number three, the clarifying distinction. The clarifying distinction. Apparently, after breakfast, some point in here, Jesus and Peter went on a walk together along the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and one of the other men was within earshot. Verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. In other words, the one tagging along behind was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we've already talked about that in our study along the way. That's the way in this gospel that John, the author, always referred to himself. It was John following along. And as the author, John even provides a little short commentary here in verse 20 to confirm that it's he that's referred to here. Verse 20 says, you know, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? This parenthetical comment we have in our text is a reference to a scene in John chapter 13. In the Last Supper, in the upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples enjoying that last Passover meal together. There was that point that came that evening. John 20, uh, 13 verse 23 through 25 tells us about it. There was reclining, John 13 says, on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. It was John. So Simon Peter gestured to him, to John, and said to John, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking about the betrayal. He had said, someone's going to betray me, one of you. Verse 25 says, he, meaning John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? So John here mentions that scene. It's mentioned to confirm that John was this intimate companion of the Lord. John was one of those in the inner circle. He had that kind of relationship with Jesus. And that's an important credential, especially when you think about the fact that he's the author of all of this that we're reading. It's a significant credential that John was an intimate 
companion of Jesus, but John was also an intimate companion and friend of Peter. And evidently, Christ's prediction of Peter's martyrdom prompted Peter to to be concerned about John, his friend. Verse 21, so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? In other words, Peter is thinking that since his own prognosis is not so great, you know, that for him, the cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship would be pretty high, then what about his friend? Well, Jesus had a very sharp reply to Peter. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain even until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is actually a slight rebuke. Peter had been informed as to what was coming in his experience. So Jesus is making the point that, Peter, that's all you need to know. That's all you need to focus on. You just need to focus on following me in your own life, regardless of the distinctive forms of obedience and ministry that others must pursue. So if it was God's will for John to experience something distinct from Peter, even to remain alive on earth until Jesus, till the second coming, Jesus was basically saying, Peter, this is not your concern. Now, Jesus was not belittling the plan for either one of these disciples. One of them, yes, called to very strategic ministry, pastoral ministry, martyrdom, the martyr's crown. The other called to a long life and and strategic ministry and even theological writing. And all of that would just be the unfolding of God's distinctive will for each of them. So in short, if you really want to capture what Jesus was telling Peter, he was saying, Peter, mind your own business. In fact, in the phrase, you follow me, that pronoun you is singular. He's speaking to Peter. But not only that, in the Greek, in the original, it's emphasized. It's you follow me. And the point is that all disciples are to live under this call of following Christ. But after that, there are distinctions. So Peter's attention was not to be on anyone else, but only on his own distinctive duty to Christ. Now what's interesting here, what we find in verse 23, is that that response from Jesus to Peter that was a a bit hypothetical about even if he remains until I come again, what's that to you? That hypothetical response actually caused a rumor to circulate. We see it in verse 23. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, only If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So this saying, in other words, a rumor, had made its way around widely in the uh, at least some parts of the early church there before this chapter was written. John wrote this many years after this scene took place, decades later. So John was aware of what was circulating out there. It was this rumor based upon an an overzealous expectation that the Lord was going to return to earth in their lifetime. So they obviously didn't understand some things that we can understand when we look at passages like 1 Thessalonians 
uh, chapter 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and so forth, we, we understand the reality that Jesus' return is delayed in God's sovereign plan. But they mistakenly believed that the imminence of the second coming meant he was coming in their, their lifetime. So because of that mistake, here's what would happen. Every year that John got older, they're watching John because Jesus is going to come back before John dies. So they, they watched John, and every year he got older as he aged, the desire for Christ would increase almost to a fever pitch. So John knew about that rumor. And his concern was, well, yeah, but if I die and Jesus hasn't come back, people's faith is going to be negatively impacted. They're going to be in for a rude shock. And they're going to be discouraged. And and the enemies of the gospel can seize on that and kind of gloat over how they see foolish Christians. So John carefully points out that what Jesus did and did not say That's what he points out in order to stifle this rumor the best that he could for fear of the damage that would be done if he died before the Lord's return. By the way, this is still a problem today due to an overzealous anticipation of the Lord's return. I mean, we do look to the Lord's return. But due to an overzealous anticipation of it, or what I could say is an overzealous tendency on the part of some to try to interpret the events of the world all the time and every generation of what they mean. Because of that, there are people even today making predictions of when the Lord will come. And of course, I can tell you, as soon as they do that, we totally discount their views. In any case, John finally draws this inspired Gospel to a close, we come to the last segment, number four, the departing explanation. The departing explanation. There are two items here that John wants to explain a bit and to bring some clarity on. He wants to explain just a bit what we could call the veracity of the content. And second, he wants to explain the limitation of the content. Let's look at those two. Here's the first thing he explains and brings some clarity to, the veracity of the content, the truthfulness of it, in other words. Verse 24, this is the gospel who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. Now, John would not have a ministry and a life cast in the same terms uh, explicitly as those of Peter, But nevertheless, his ministry was still going to be strategic. His ministry is still important. Primarily, his ministry was completed in his writings. So that's what the phrase, these things, refers to. This book. Not just the contents of chapter 21 alone and this scene that we're looking at, but the entire fourth gospel. I'm testifying to these things and wrote down these things, and notice the pronoun we, verse 24, and we know that his testimony is true. John is being so modest here and humble as he talks to himself. He talks about himself here, refers to himself. This we is what we sometimes even today call, call an editorial we. We do that sometimes in our conversation. Well, John used the pronoun to make the point that this book was not only a spirit-inspired book, it was spirit-inspired 
first-hand eyewitness testimony. That's his point. We know it to be true. He's talking about himself. John says, I personally witnessed the events recorded in this gospel, and what I wrote is true. That's the veracity of the content. He's given a little bit of an explanation to it as he closes, but even though what he wrote was true, he wants to explain once again what he wrote was not exhaustive. That's the second explanation, the limitation of the content. Verse 25, the limitation of the content. He goes on to say, and there are also many other things which Jesus did. Now that actually is something that was said in a a similar way back in chapter 20, verse 30. You can look at that. He ended that chapter by saying, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written uh, in this book. But now in our text, note the amazing thought that John added, verse 25 of our text. He says that there were so many other things that if They were written in detail. I suppose even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. What a thought. Now, if they had been written, that'd be a lot. That'd be a big gospel. I could have just started in the gospel of John the first day I came, and I'd still be in it, and I would someday die and not finish it, you know. But we have what the Spirit inspired. And and look at this little unusual statement in verse 25. He says, I suppose. That's that's very personal verbiage. And that kind of personal verbiage by John is not not found in this book, really. This is very different for John. Suddenly, he's talking about himself. Basically, it was a way for him to maintain some humility and modesty while he refers to his own writing more directly, but it represents now this more personal tone, a more informal tone than what we've seen from him the rest of the book. But here's what he says, I I suppose this, and here we have this statement about the world being a very small resource center that would not hold it, a very inadequate library to hold the record of Jesus' ministry. That is no doubt an exaggeration. It's hyperbole in one sense, the way you write, something like that. On the other hand, the reality is, if we think about it, since Jesus is the one through whom the entire universe was created, since Jesus is the one that is ruling and reigning over every molecule of the universe, it's not far-fetched to see the literal side of this. I mean, if all of his deeds were described... Everything he's ever done, everything that he is doing, everything that he will do throughout the entire universe, then in that sense, it is true. The world's not big enough. So John limited his selections. But it was limited under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it was all for his stated goal. Look back at chapter 20, verse 31. Why did he write down what he wrote? Chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. For that goal, 
to present Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God and to have life in his name for that goal, what he did record under the inspiration of the Spirit is sufficient. It is precisely what the Holy Spirit wanted him to write and therefore it is precisely what the Spirit wants us to study and to know. So these final words, I think, are great final words because they're directing the attention where it's due, and that's the greatness of Jesus. I mean, no single book can truly give the honor to Jesus that he deserves. I mean, that's, that's John's perspective here. That's what's flowing out of his heart. I mean, all the books ever created don't give him the honor that he's due. What a great way for John to conclude this book, this reminder of the immensity of the glory of the Son of God. Well, commenting on this ending of John, J.C. Ryle wrote this. I love this. These words bring to an end the most precious book in the Bible. It is like listening to the parting words of a friend. Richard Phillips adds a thought as well. Anyone who has devoted a great deal of time to studying this great gospel record is bound to regret its end and wish that John might have told us more of the many other things to which he refers. Sure, on the human side, we would long for that. But once again, it's exactly what the Spirit wanted John to write, and this fourth gospel therefore does provide an adequate and glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an honor it has been for us to study it. Not an exhaustive picture, but a sufficient picture. And this study has been incredibly helpful, a feast even for my own soul, as I know it has been for yours as well. Well, those are John's concluding words. I'm going to add my concluding words to his concluding words. My own concluding thoughts to share with you, there's two of them. It's a thought, first of all, about God's general call and general plan for all of his people, and then just a thought about God's specific plan for his people. Here's thought number one. God's general plan for each of us is the same. God's general plan for each of us is the same. And that general plan for all of his children is, be, is exactly what Jesus said. It is to follow him. It is to be a follower of Jesus. Or to say it another way, following Jesus out of a love for him is not some sort of special level of spirituality that some people maybe in Christianity get to. No, following Jesus is synonymous with being saved. Saved people are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. Like I already said, what an honor. What a thrill to know that I can wake up every day knowing what my identity is. I'm a follower of Jesus today. What's my purpose for living today? What a thrill to know. I'm not trying to find that. The general call of my life is to be a follower of Jesus today. And what's the evidence that we are followers of Jesus? I've already said it. I'll say it again and give you some more scriptures. The Bible is clear that 
It is our pursuit of obedience to his commands. We don't obey in order to be accepted by God. We are accepted in Christ, graciously accepted. And because of that, we want to obey. Obedience is important. It just depends on which side of the cross you put it on. Cross representing our coming to Christ. John 14, verse 15. We'll draw upon the Gospel of John here. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There is no such thing from the New Testament vantage point even that a believer is just to live his life and and not really care about the commandments of the Lord. Christ said, if you love me, you'll keep them. John 14, verse 21, same chapter, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now, we're not perfect in this, are we? We fail many times, but nothing changes about God's general plan for us. Nevertheless, this is our desire. Why? Because he is who he is. He's the Lord, and he's the Lord of our lives. And we know, based on Scripture, that following Christ is going to bring some level of suffering. I mean, for Peter, that meant martyrdom. For John, it meant a long life, but a long life that was filled with persecution. At the end of his life, he was exiled. The island of Patmos, because of his testimony of love for Christ. So yes, there are those who have paid the ultimate price in church history. There are those who are paying the price more recently because of their testimony for Christ. But regardless of that extreme, for every follower, even if martyrdom is not the Lord's will, there will be suffering involved because following in Christ includes self-denial. A self-denial that's presented in the New Testament as taking up our cross. Again, verses, Matthew 10, verse 38. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. It's not that he kicks somebody out of the family and they're not saved anymore. The point is still the same. Someone who's truly regenerate, truly saved, is a follower of Jesus, and they understand this is going to mean some suffering at times and some self-denial and self-discipline and taking up my cross. Again, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's not a second level of Christian living. That's coming to Christ to be a follower. Paul understood this. He just puts it in different terms. Like Romans 14, verse 8. He says, if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Why? He understood the general call in his life. I'm a follower of Jesus. He said it most famously in Philippians 1.21, right? For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I live here and follow Christ. I live for him. That's my purpose. That's the call on my life, to flesh that out in whatever way I need to in every category of my life, home, business, marriage, parenting. But if I die, it's about Christ still. I get to be in his presence. Again, I emphasize, I understand we are not perfect in this, but it is our pursuit. And though suffering is involved, 
just due to living a counter-cultural life in this fallen world that's going to bring the scorn of the world, even though suffering is going to be involved at times, don't get me wrong, there's also joy in following Jesus. Psalm 1611, this has always been the perspective of God's true redeemed people. Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. We taste that as followers of Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. A true believer, even in times of suffering, though the pain is real, we don't deny that. And the suffering is real. The difficulty is real. Still, at the end of the day, if you ask them, would you rather have a life not following Jesus, but no suffering, or following Jesus in suffering, a true believer will always say, I follow Jesus. And even in the worst suffering, there's still joy. We taste the fullness of joy. We taste of the pleasures forever that are in his right hand. One thought to leave you with then. God's general plan for each of us is the same. Second thought. God's specific plan for each of us is not the same. God's specific plan for each of us is not the same. So there is a common mistake we we need to avoid as individuals and as a church. We need to avoid this common mistake of expecting everyone's distinctive experience in following Christ to be precisely the same. I mean, just look at Peter and John in our passage. Two men wired completely differently. I mean, as far as all we know about Peter, Peter is consistently portrayed as this impulsive, impetuous man of action. John comes across more as we we see the tenor of his overall life as being more reflective, maybe even more perceptive. Couldn't find any two men more different. They're examples then of what is true in the body of Christ. They're examples of what is true in this church. People have different strengths. People have different weaknesses. People have different kinds of personalities. So no Christian should ever feel pressure to be just like somebody else in the body of Christ or this church. You see, God places his people into churches in such a way where different kinds of Christians end up working together in partnership for the kingdom and for the glory of God. Just as Peter and John served effectively together in the early days of the church. The reality is that the life experience of one Christian may vary considerably from that of another. Even though we all share the common general calling to follow Christ, some will suffer more than others. That's God's specific plan for them. Some will be more well-known than others. So on the personal side of what I'm saying, we just need to accept how that's going to flesh out in our lives according to God's will, including whatever changes he keeps bringing along the way in our journey. God's specific plan for each of us is not the same. And by the way, one of those situations in life that's specifically tailored to each one of us, one of those situations in life that will prove different for each one of us is the manner of our 
death. The particulars of each case is likely going to be different. We've had enough deaths here in our church, the years I've been here, to know that. I grew up in a pastor's home, so I went to countless funerals, even as a child. The particulars of each case are different. And yet for believers, there's something that is the same for each of us that should be in our thinking. And that is the desire to glorify God as we approach our death. To glorify Him in our death the best we can. That was what Peter, I know, took some comfort in when Jesus told him about his death. By this you'll glorify God, Peter. I wonder if we think that way. Maybe we do think about following Christ a lot and how can I glorify God in my life today? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever pray about that? Lord, today is one day closer to the specifics that you have designed for my death. Help me today to even prepare myself for glorifying you in that experience. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Let us pray while we live in health that we may glorify God in our end. Let us leave it to God to choose the where, the when, the how, and all the manner of our departing. Let us only ask that it may glorify God. The point is that the Lord has a unique plan for each of his followers and how they'll glorify him in life and death. Or as today's sermon title sums it up, our times are in his hands. May God give us the grace to stay faithful daily, being a true, committed follower of Jesus. And may he help us to be content with the specifics of whatever his will is in that journey. And may he even grace us to be able to start praying now, Lord, help me to glorify you in the way I die. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this long journey we've been on in this great gospel writing. We thank you for how you have consistently drawn our attention to the eternal Son how we have witnessed the immensity of his glory in the writing of Scripture. Help us who are your followers today to be captured by this understanding that that's what it means to be saved, that's what it means to know you, is to follow you, to obey you, to imitate you, to seek to bring glory to you, to love you. Help us grow in our love for you. We confess our failures. We're so weak in this. And you're so gracious and patient to pick us up and set us on the road once again. Lord, I also pray for anyone here who's not a true follower of Christ, that you would open their hearts to believe that they would put their trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin so that they can then, from that moment on, follow him as the Lord of their life. In our Savior's name, amen.